Hello everyone, Jason Howard from LifeWealth, uh, start of September and we're rolling into uh, episode three of the LifeWealth podcast. Uh, joining me today is James Vandaloo. Good morning, Jason. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, this takes obviously better than our last take already, James, because your phone didn't ring, so that's a, that's a win for us straight away. <laughs> Um, uh, just for everyone joining us today, uh, really looking forward to this particular podcast. We've just had James and Terry and Mark in Sydney for the twice yearly um, portfolio construction conference, um, which I'll get James to explain in a moment. For, for clients who have been with LifeWell for a long time, and even some of those have joined us recently, um, the portfolio construction conference, as I said, takes place twice a year. Uh, and it's really a chance for professionals right across Australia and internationally to, to come together and get an understanding of you know the theory of, theories of portfolio construction and what the outlook is for the world economically and for investments as a whole. But but James, you want to expand on that a little bit more? I guess what the what what that uh, portfolio construction conference is? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's really a get together between a whole heap of fund managers, strategists economists and uh, they have a forum to really just share their views and put out to the community what they think's going on in the world and, and what they see for the years ahead. So we go along twice a year and have a good listen because it, it, it's always interesting to you know hear, especially some of the international guys that you, you, you get there, get their views about what they think's coming up in the year or two ahead. Mm. So... Uh, it's always exciting to hear from people smarter than you are. Yeah, without a doubt. I know it's always been such an important part of the Life Wealth Investment Committee and the, the, the Life Wealth Investment philosophy and outlook, I guess. We talked about in the last po- uh, podcast about um, signal and noise and uh, you know not getting sucked into the noise and trying to stay as true as possible to, to the signal. And the benefit of going to that twice a year, as we've said to many clients over time, Whilst, whilst where events take place that we do need to react to at any given time, we will, um, it's nice to be able to have those sort of two cornerstones to link to twice a year and say, okay, let's go and reassess where we are in the context of the decisions we've been making um, and then, I guess, line that up with what the, the broader thought process is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, as you said, getting out of the noise is sometimes really refreshing mm. because what we often forget is we're all trying to work out what's going to happen next week. Is the market going to go up or down? Do we need to be in? Do we need to be out? Mm. The reality is most of these professionals are building portfolios that have got to stand the test of not weeks and months, but decades. Mm. Um, so really looking through that longer term lens and trying to make decisions with that in mind, it it sometimes sharpens you up. Yeah, which is great, isn't it? It it kind of reaffirms that that's what we're about and that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to pick next week. We're trying to make sure we're building portfolios that stand the test of time. Absolutely. So, so I guess you know, um, you and I have talked about this after you've come back, and you know, we're a lot exchanging lots of messages while whilst you're away as well. Um, you know, how do you, uh, I guess, summarise two pretty full-on days into a, into a short podcast? I guess we'll work that out as we as we go. But I guess you know, what were some of the takeaways you took from the portfolio construction conference? Yeah, to, to be honest, I think they were less bearish than probably what's been portrayed in the media over the last few weeks. You know, we had the yield curve inversion a couple of weeks ago and there's a bit of a panic and a sell-off in the States and everyone was running around with their head on fire. Um, 
definitely the professionals were probably a little bit less less bearish than what you'd read in the media about Im- imminent recessions. Yeah, right. So um, that's probably the biggest takeout. Yeah. Having said that, um, we know it's tough at mm. the moment. Trying to find yield is is really hard. Um, rates are expected to remain low for quite some time in, into the future. That's a difficult environment, particularly for retirees and people that are... Um, yeah, I was just about to say to you, I mean, that's a difficult environment across the board because, you know, as everyone knows, you, your return comes in one of two ways, income and or growth. Um, but I think you hit on that and it's probably worth expanding a little bit because not everyone listening to this podcast is a retiree, just the importance of the income element of a return for a retiree. Absolutely. So uh, while we've got plenty of clients that are accumulating wealth for the future and they're working and earning and making good money, um, our retiree clients, they've done that part and they're now living off their their savings. So we're looking for that savings pot to generate some cash flow so they can do that. Now, the reality at the moment is real rates are negative. Mm. What that means is inflation is actually higher than the coupon returns Mm. from safe cash TDs or government bonds. So um, that means if that was going to be our strategy for long term, we're going to run out of money. Mm. It's it's actually that simple. Yeah. And this is this point about, yes, we need to keep an eye on the short term, but much more important is building portfolios that can stand the test of the time for, for every client that we have, regardless of the stage of life and stage of investment. Absolutely. Obviously, there's a different tilt on it depending on individual circumstance. Yeah, of course. But the problem we're experiencing now, this is not a life wealth problem. This is not a Australia problem. This is a global. Yes. This is a global problem. And it's it's actually, it's been engineered mm. by the central banks, basically. Mm. I know you've been talking about that for a long time, that this hasn't just happened. The central banks have intentionally caused this to happen or, or, or pursued this. Uh, that's absolutely the case. Um, they tried to make inflation really after the financial crisis because governments went into a whole lot of debt to yeah. bail out the, the Western banking system. It, it worked for a little while, but to be honest, it hasn't worked very well. Mm. And it looks like some of the big things happening in the world that are that are structural have a deflationary tendency to them. So. What are some of those some of those big issues? Firstly, you've got China. Um, China's stimulus after the global financial crisis was huge, and I think they poured more cement in the three years after the financial crisis than the US did in the entire century before that. Yeah, I love that stat. I know, I know that's been rolling around for a few years now, but it's just such a great way to give you a sense of scale, isn't it? So the, the point being, it was massive and they've got overcapacity in a lot of their, their industrial engine. Yeah. Now, if you were being a pure capitalist society, a lot of that overcapacity is, is not very productive. Yep. And uh, it would close and prices would go up. But um, in China, they've got real fears about the people losing jobs. Mm. So a lot of their stimulus is going and propping up these industries that aren't profitable. Yeah, right. Um, So we've still got overcapacity and that in itself is quite deflationary because 
you're able to buy steel from them at a, at a non-commercial rate. Yep. Um, so that puts deflation back into the system. Um, you've got trends of technology moving really, really quickly. And a really simple example is think of how much you paid for your first plasma or your first big yeah, sure. LCD TV. Yeah, yeah. Think of how cheap they are now. Yeah. So the technology revolution has been deflationary as well. Not to mention the chiropractic bills from having to carry those first TVs uh, from the you know from the car to the the front the front of your house. I was thinking about that the other day. These TVs have changed, haven't they? Uh, they sure have. Yeah. So that's another example. And the, the other big one is actually demographics in, in the Western world. Mm. So you've got an aging population, people living much longer. What happens when um, populations age? Lower spending, yeah. lower consumption, lower demand for goods. So those deflationary trends have outweighed all the money printing and, and stimulus um, at this point. Mm. And the feedback I'm getting from the economists that I was listening to is that they think that's going to endure for some, some time to come. And hence, very low interest rates. Uh, this is interesting because you've, you've just made me th- uh, think of something and I've said this on uh, two previous podcasts. I, I feel nervous for you when I ask you questions without notice. Um, but something you said about obviously the Western world and you know, aging demographics and all those sorts of things, we know in the broader world, the developing world, um, I guess, you know, it's a widespread generalization, but the developing world has got strong growth rates, yeah? demographically as well as spending-wise. Um, you know, it's, it's places such as Nigeria and uh, India's growing middle class and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, I'm just thinking intuitively, is there an inflection point where that changeover happens that the Western world demographic rates are, um, you know, aging and spending's dropping away, but the middle class growing in the developing world will eventually take over and take, uh, make up for the, the lack of demand from the Western world? I certainly do. And that was actually something that was um, presented on at, oh, the, right. at the conference. Okay. Um, so that actually, we didn't talk about it. That ties mm. in um, really, really well. So we've spoken about low rates, deflation. So that means the defensive part of our portfolio isn't going to throw off much cash. Yeah. That's just the way of the world at the moment. So it means our, our growth assets need to work harder in that environment. And that's not easy mm. when you've got a trend of global growth slowing. It's still positive, but it's slowing. So yeah, sure. it's not happy days. So how are we going to try and get a decent return out of that growth pot? Um, it's to try and find those secular or structural growth trends and um, find winners in that, in that bucket mm. and go hard at them. And what you've actually said is absolutely correct because um, – over, our, over that medium to longer term horizon, there's going to be a demand shock mm. because um, population growth in those places that you've mentioned, India, Africa, Ni- Nigeria being, it's The crazy. growth rates in Nigeria are insane. Yep. And, uh, and some of the Southeast Asian countries, um, there's going to be a demand shock yeah. uh, a, a few years down the track. So... Um, if if we think about what are the what are what are the areas where where we're likely to see spending pick up um, as they become more middle class, 
they're going to eat more. Mm. Um, they're going to eat, and they're going to eat more Western. They're going to have more more meat. Yeah. And um, that bodes well, not just you think, oh, well, let's buy a flock, you know, cows. Yeah, sure. But it's more than that because the amount of agriculture and grain that goes into producing protein, it's mm. like four to one compared to eating a bowl of rice. Yeah, yeah. So there's going to be a massive uplift in, in agriculture. Mm. Um, population growth, unfortunately, is environmental concerns and that means there's going to be opportunities mm. in in that space um power storage technology and associated commodities um fuel demand is going to pick up i don't think it's all going to be um met by oil there's different technologies mm. and being on the right side of those sort of uh sort of trends uh, will be a, be a good thing healthcare because um Western medicine, a lot of it is because of Western food. Mm. And uh, and you being a vegetarian would, would be very familiar with this. Thanks for adding me there, uh, JV. That's great. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, but basically, the more meat you eat, the more medicine you need as cholesterol and things um, mm. go up. So uh, the, the drug companies are probably going to have a ball in in those countries in a, in a few years' time. Mm. So that's, that's certainly something something interesting mm. um so there's some of those big big picture themes and then you try and think well how do you play them so i'll try and give a few examples um lvmh louis vuitton moet hennessy okay <laughs> um french listed uh, that sounds like uh like a dream weekend in vegas or something well that's right and yeah. we see those louis vuitton bags yeah, uh, sure. rolling up and down Collins Street out the yeah. front of the office yeah, uh, uh, most days. That company has just nailed the rise of consumption in China. Yeah. Um, and its growth rates have been astonishing and mm. probably will be. So yeah. um, that's been a big winner from China's rise. Mm-hmm. We don't see that changing going forward. Um, Alphabet. Alphabet has benefited from the change from advertising being print and television going online. And just for not not everyone who's listening to the podcast may not realize what Alphabet is best known as. Google. Mm-hmm. Google. So um, so Google has been, basically their advertising business has been growing at 20% per annum. Which for, is just incredible numbers at any time, but particularly in a low growth environment. And there's still heaps of runway, but mm. what a lot of people don't know is Google have a few other businesses. Um, they have a uh, cloud storage mm-hmm. business. Now, everybody's moving from service to the clouds. This is a trend that's going to last for years. Mm. So there's a really big growth runway in that business. And um, they have another business which focuses on uh, driverless vehicles. Mm. I think it's Waymo is, is, is the yeah. name of the business. Yeah. It's still early days, but um, we are already starting to see a trend to uh, unmanned vehicles mm. and you know they're well positioned. So that's a business even in the low growth world, which we think should be able to grow far faster than inflation. And, and I guess this is the, the challenging part, isn't it? And, and, and really it's conceptually, it's no different than all this conversation we've had about signal and noise, um, being mindful of the short term, but focusing on the long term. 
it's yet we can see all these developing opportunities around globally yeah and we can see them in specific industries we can see them in you know um, the middle class of the developing world needing more protein uh, you know medication coming off the back of that but the challenge is yes there'll be lots of um, shiny new companies or shiny new investment vehicles where you look at it and say yes it sounds great because the opportunity is so massive but balancing off balancing out is that the company or is that the technology that's going to be able to take advantage of it? How do you, how do you balance that up? It's not easy, obviously. It, it, it's certainly not easy and it's and it's easy to have the right theme but still make the wrong investment. Yeah. So I'm not saying we need to go and um, invest purely in themes. Uh, historically, that doesn't end well. Mm. But um, with the managers we're selecting to run money, mm. we're trying to um, we're trying to find the ones that have got a good track record of getting the balance right between actually fishing in the right pond, being mm. the ponds where we think there's going to be stru- structural growth, yes. but then still getting their elbows dirty, doing the DD and buying you know quality businesses that are making money today that look like they'll be durable. And in fact, in in you know within the generation, you can looking back a generation. We actually have a real-world example of that, don't we? we? It's the, again, question with that notice, so sorry. Uh, but it's the, the tech bust of the turn of the century. You know, everyone was throwing money into tech and, you know, there was articles coming out talking about it's, it's a whole new environment of financial investments. The world's completely changed. Don't worry about those old-school banks and things like that. That's not where you're going to make money in the future. It's all about this new tech. Bubble, 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 bubble bursts. And... Um, a whole heap of people then don't invest into those segments in the following five to seven years because of the tech bubble. But so many of the great companies came out of the tech bubble because they were strong enough to survive and thrive in that environment, like your alphabet, like your alphabets, etc. Uh, sorry, like your alphabet, um, like Apple, etc. Amazon, etc., etc. Amazon, Microsoft. Yeah, and Microsoft's another one that's probably reinvented itself again. Yeah, and I think without doubt, yeah. has a terrific. Um, terrific growth, growth runway. Mm. So, um, yep, it's it's not easy, but mm. big picture on the on the equity side, that's that's you know where we want to be, and we're trying to spend our time with managers who we think can deliver on that for us. Yeah. Um, coming back a little bit shorter term, they do surveys at these conferences and. Um, the options to the crowd were, and I would consider the crowd pretty pretty intelligent sort of professionals. Yes. Um, what do you think's most likely over the next eighteen months? A neutral scenario, which is kind of like where we are, we're grinding along, growth is slow, uh, interest rates stay low, but um, you know you've got this trade war noise in the background that's probably not going to go away. Um, Roll over on a downside scenario, and we have a uh, have a recession in the next eighteen months, or things get better and we break to the upside and, and have a burst of growth. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And um, the scenario that was by far the most probable in that o- audience was scenario one, which was the neutral scenario of keep grinding mm, on. Yeah. And the probability. That, that, that was by far the biggest probability with the second being uh, the rollover, the end of cycle rollover yeah, okay. and, yeah. and, and recession. Yeah. Um, with It was probably only 10% that thought mm. there was a chance of, of things going really well and, yeah, right. and taking off 
in the economy. Mm. So, you know, my take from that is the most likely scenario is we stay as we have been, keep grinding on. So therefore, you're going to have to stay diversified. Um, most balanced funds have been running around 70-30, 70% growth, 30% defence. Yep. Um, getting later in a cycle, perhaps lifting that that defence a little bit higher, yep. maybe from 30 to closer to 40, so a 60-40 rather yeah, than 70-30. Sure. Yep. Which, doesn't, which doesn't sound like much, but in reality is quite a significant shift. Well, it would be if, if that second scenario comes and we do um, have a recession. Yeah. So... It, 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 you, you're lowering the return of the portfolio over the next year or two, mm. but you're building in a little bit of protection for that yeah, sure. for that scenario, yep. which is probably the most likely next scenario if we're if we're honest. Mm. And, um, and, in, and in you know, sort of using the analogy of I guess you know the rest of your assets, it's almost paying an insurance premium by you know, let's say for example, giving up one percent return in the next twelve months. Again, for the sake of the argument, sake of the example. Um, to give you that insurance policy when the you know the, the downturn comes, that's absolutely right. And then hopefully in that downturn, that's when you can start moving money back. Uh, the reality is um, bond yields are low; they've gone down. If a recession does get priced in in, in the US, they'll go lower. Yeah, you know, sure. I, yeah, I would okay. would be amazed if rates don't go negative. Yep. So your bonds will hold up pretty well. Yep, and that'll give you a chance then to cash in some of those chips. Mm. And use them to start buying some of these assets that we think are going to work. Yeah, right. So looking for those opportunities that come. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So um, that's really what we came away with. It it was not rocket science. There was no moment which which someone said, you know, my prediction is the world's going into recession in three weeks, and this is the scenario. And even if they did, it's just somebody else's prediction. (laughs) Well, that's that's exactly right. But there wasn't anything really compelling mm. to say we need to be doing anything crazily different. The environment we've had is probably the way it's going to be for a little bit while longer. Um, the things that are causing trouble in the world, like the trade frictions, these are probably longer term issues. They're not probably going away quicker. Yeah, they're, they're of course. Gonna, they, they get the press data. They get the press day to day, don't they? Like it's, uh, you know, and and it's exacerbated by Trump and, you know, everyone, there's always a story out of Trump and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But yeah, again, signal and noise, signal and noise, signal and noise, yeah. And will there be some miraculous event that causes inflation to pick up and we get higher yields and we've got to worry about high inflation? Can't see anything Mm. in the short term, medium to longer term, absolutely. Mm. But uh, we're not there yet. But again, if that was to happen, for, for uh, I guess from the point of view of our clients listening into the podcast, if that was to happen, some miracle, mm. um, we're both sort of saying that within inverted commas, if some miracle takes place, we would adapt to that. Oh, absolutely. And you'd want to be getting out of fixed income and long duration assets. Mm. You, your infrastructure, your A REITs, your bonds, if that was your view, you, you would want to sell them because- as interest rates normalise, those things are going to get massacred. Yeah, sure. Um, it's probably a story for years down yeah. the track. Though. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so th- that's a wrap up of, I guess, the portfolio construction conference and how it informs, uh, I guess, our strategy and our investment outlook. Anything else you wanted to add today? Anything else about me you want to sort of get out to the marketplace without telling me you're going to tell the world? Or <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I, I think oh, that's good. it. Good, yeah. Uh, no. As always, we'll... Um, 
we'll write a paper and, and put a paper out there sharing a little bit more details behind these things we've mm-hmm. we've discussed. Yeah. Um, we're having a look at the portfolio at the moment. Mm-hmm. The reality is we're trying to rip costs out of the portfolio. So yeah. when coupons are so low, it's really hard to pay pay managers. So we're, we're trying to really go passive on a lot of those long duration assets like your mm. bonds, yeah. um, like your A REITs and infrastructure mm. and try and only spend the money on the areas where we hope good management will be able to add, add alpha on the growth asset side. I think that's a really good point. And just to, I guess, hone in on that again, I, I might just hone in a little bit more. Uh, the reality is we're always looking for a return outcome for our clients, always. Um, there are times in a cycle where you are prepared on behalf of your clients to pay some premium to fund managers because you believe they can give a stronger return. We're in the stage of the cycle late where we don't believe or it's more difficult for those quality fund managers, let's call them, um, to, to derive a, a premium over and above what is, what is a low rate environment. So it's time to actually try and drive that return by reducing costs. Is that a fair summation? Well, that, that, that's exactly it. And a practical example of that is 2008 when the GFC rolled around, we could get 5% in a term deposit Yes. And, you know, we could buy bonds with coupons between 4 and 6% per annum. Mm. Now, the fund manager fees on those type of products um, was probably around about 50 basis points or half a, half a percent. Half a percent, yeah. Um, so that's not a huge part of a 5% coupon. Right now, coupons are anywhere between 1% mm. and 2.5%. Yeah. So uh, clearly, if you're getting a one percent coupon and your manager's charging forty or fifty bips, that's a whole lot of the cash no flow. Absolutely. So no that just doesn't work. Mm. So uh, we've got to try and work work around that. Yeah, which I know you're actively working on now with the rest of the investment committee, Mark and Terry, and everybody else. So uh, that's that's good tonight. Excellent. Okay, well, James, you and I have been going for just a lazy twenty six minutes here. Unless you've got anything else you want to add before we uh, we finish up, I think that's plenty for one day. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, uh, Podcast number three is under our belt now. We'll get this up up and uh, out to our clients as quickly as possible, and uh, we'll get ready for podcast number four shortly. Thanks for the chat, Jason, and thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.